0: My belief is that we're actually born free, and then shame enters the chat, and it makes us have to contour ourselves out of fear. And for me, coming out was actually about choosing love over fear and saying, what would it look like if I didn't restrict myself, but expanded myself? What would it look like if I gave myself permission to be free right now?
1: I believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. Welcome back. We are here for season three a short but excellent season. This season was brought to you by the South by Southwest Innovators Fund. Some of the interviews were conducted in front of a live audience focused on entrepreneurship and technology for their first ever annual Founder Summit. This year, in addition to the audio, we have video of these interviews. I'm so excited for you to see them. You can view them at the southbysouthwestinnovatorsfund.com. So that's S-X-S-W, innovatorsfund.com. Well, it is my great, great privilege and honor, big, big, exciting keynote speakers for us these next two days to have Aloke here with us.
0: Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm so good. I'm backstage here in Providence, Rhode Island before a show.
1: Thank you for making the time. We really appreciate it. And for those of you that aren't familiar with Alok's work, Alok is an author, a speaker, a thought leader on nonconformity, and is currently on a world tour of their show. And if you have not seen it, I really, really suggest you do, because I saw it when you were in L.A. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was fantastic. So just to give you a little primer, a look, the lens sort of which we operate in is understanding the intersection of business and spirituality. The goal being to redefine leadership to be a little bit more holistic and a little bit more inclusive. And so that's sort of the tone and general cadence of the conversation we'll be having today. And so I'd love you to sort of share with us what what was your path to leadership?
0: You know, I'm a big believer that we have to go internally before we can go externally. And I think so much of what's missing in the world is the lack of a grasp of understanding that we have souls first and that unless we, it's not just that we have spirit, but that we are spirit. And unless we feel that internal closure, then we're going to continue to recreate our wounds externally. So it's strange because I think often when people think about leadership, they want to hear about experiences that could fit on a CV, but I'm here to say that often the most important experiences are those that people will never regard as professional. they are lessons that teach us courage, lessons that teach us what it means to show up for yourself and not betray yourself, lessons that show us love. So I think my healing journey has actually allowed me to feel like I could lead because I realized that I was in control of my own life, that I was a leader of my own life. And once I figured that out, leadership elsewhere made sense.
1: What was one of the first sort of moments in your life where you had to sort of find that courage or decide to start doing that inner journey?
0: You know, I often say that I I really don't agree with the contemporary framing of privileged politics. Like I think to the world, someone like me, who's of color, who's trans, who's queer, who's gender nonconforming, People often just think that I have been denied privilege, but I actually had the privilege to ask myself, who do I wanna be? Because the world wasn't structured around people like me. So I had to introspect. I had an opportunity to say who you think I am is not who I actually am. Coming out was a practice of actually showing the world, here's who I am on my own terms. And so I have the privilege, actually, that a lot of people in this world don't have to know really early on that people weren't seeing me for who I was. And that's actually the case for everyone, by the way, not just for queer and trans people. This world only sees us for who it wants us to be, not who we actually are, for who it projects us to be, not our actual reality. And so I had the opportunity to notice other people's projections weren't my reality. So then what was my reality? And it wasn't like a a decisive moment. It was a continual process of returning home. My belief is that we're actually born free. And then shame enters the chat. And it makes us have to contour ourselves out of fear. And for me, coming out was actually about choosing love over fear and saying, what would it look like if I didn't restrict myself but expanded myself? What would it look like if I gave myself permission to be free right now? And that. Even though it was painful and even though it led to a lot of friction and a lot of people not understanding me led to me understanding me led to a deep sense of conviction in who i am and what i'm doing
1: i think the elimination of caring about society right and re- relinquishing the shame is very helpful into being your most authentic self and so i, th- I think in every category whether it's business or personal that idea that just honoring yourself versus what society tells you to be is really, really powerful. And so you have so many expressions of your core purpose. I would love if you could walk us through sort of what you believe is the through line of your purpose. Like what what would you what would you encompass it as?
0: I'm so geeked to be having this conversation because <laughs> I am always a person talking about purpose wherever I go. And then people are like <laughs> what does that even mean? And I'm like, how have you not thought about your purpose? Like, how could you function on this earth? I am with you. Purpose, you. know.
1: <laughs> I am with you, yes.
0: We have to have purpose as a grounding ritual because otherwise we just get pulled in so many different directions because the world wants so much of us. And I think my diagnosis is that everyone is being pulled admirably, I mean, they're doing it out of love. They're doing it out of respect. They're doing it out of tradition. But they're being pulled in so many directions that they're they they they're rudderless. It's kind of like they're just spinning around in a circle and not going anywhere. There's a stagnancy there. And for me, my purpose is, is many faceted. But I think first and foremost, it's about teaching love. And you know, one of my favorite writers and, and inspirations is Bell Hooks, who is the author of an incredible book called All About Love that I recommend that everyone read if you haven't. And Bell Hooks says in that book that we're not taught how to love in this world. We assume that our families are the ones teaching us that, but actually our families often teach us that love can coexist with abuse. And so as children, we're defending that narrative so that when we're actually presented with love, we reject it because we think that love and harm have to coexist and they can't. And so she says, in order to actually experience love in our lives, we have to encounter our lovelessness. And so she asks, where do we go in the world to learn how to love? And that's what I want my work to be, where people actually learn how to love. And what it means to teach love for me is to teach people that they are worth contradiction, they are allowed complexity, they're allowed a process and becoming. They're allowed to be thorny and complicated. They're allowed to be unruly and feral and confused and still be welcome. I think we live in a world where love is so often conditional on how articulate we are or how beautiful we are or how all-knowing we are and i don't think love has contingency and so i try to find love in some of the most desolate places i don't think that we win politically economically in any way when we respond with the same frequency of hatred that we experience we have to break that circuitry and to break that circuitry we have to believe in other people's capacity for transformation and so another prong of that love is the, is the belief in transformation, which is my purpose. I think we live in a world that teaches us that the status quo is the only way to live and that all alternatives are too threatening or too scary or too destabilizing. But I, I feel like I'm an ambassador for transformation because I've seen it in my own life. I've lived so many lives in this one. I've had to outgrow so many skins in this one. And what I've learned is that actually transformation is the currency of the universe. Like the seasons change, so do we. And so I wanna teach people that change is possible. And I think that right now that's what's needed so much because in our economic systems and our political systems, we seem to think that business as usual is the only way to function. When what we actually need right now is like radical imagination to reconsider what we thought was given It's not natural, it's the choices of a select few.
1: I wanna say two things. One is, I love everything you're saying. I will get to my second question, which will be a follow-up on this. But I think that so much of change work, we're so used to a culture of instant gratification, right? Like that we're gonna do this thing, we're gonna see the result. And when you're asking for transformation and when you're planting seeds of change and you're being loving, we don't always see the result and we are blessed if we can close the loop and see the seeds grow. But oftentimes in that work, we don't get to see the flower bloom. We just plant the seed and we move on. And I think that's the challenging part of it is that being loving is not always, it's not always reciprocity, right? And so what I want to ask you is that it's, it's one thing to say, okay, I'm, and you do embody this, so I'm not saying that you don't, but it's to teach love and be loving. But then there are days where it's really hard to do that and it's really hard to be loving when you've had a hard day and people are like spewing hatred at you. So how do you do it?
0: What I really want the world to understand is that all separatedness is an illusion. So I think that I was really surprised that during a global pandemic, when we have to confront the existential reality that we all breathe the same air and that like political borders are arbitrary and don't protect us from the transmission of a virus, that we're profoundly interconnected, that we're still out here pretending like we're separate. That's just not, it's never been the truth. What happens over there impacts us over here. There's no us and them. There's no here and there. All there is, is we. And the truth is, when I am practicing love and compassion for other people, it's because I'm practicing love and compassion for myself. So, so often people frame compassion as benevolence for the other, and that's an incorrect framing. Let me explain. If people are trying me and I'm gonna get angry, who is that ultimately gonna impact? That's gonna increase my cortisol levels. That's gonna make it harder for me to sleep. That's gonna make my body move towards allostatic load, which is chronic fight or flight. That could manifest as physical symptoms like a headache or back pain or knee pain that resentment and that bitterness, ultimately will be my slow decay. And so I began to realize when I choose love, that activates my body's internal pharmacy that actually mobilizes positive sensations in my body, makes me feel better. So hope is a choice that I make, because if I dwell in fear and cynicism, I don't want to wake up. That if I choose to be hopeful, if I choose to see miracles around me, that mobilizes my body to be like, yeah, let's do it. And I've got a gusto to live. So I practice forgiveness and I practice compassion and I practice love, ultimately, as an act of self preservation. And I think it's really important here to get granular. There's a difference between living and existing. Most people are existing, which means, sure. Your organs are functioning, like you have breath, you're capable of navigating the world. But I thought that existence was the same thing as living until I began to work on my spirituality. And then I realized actually life gets to be fun. It gets to be easy. It
1: does, doesn't it? It really does.
0: You know, I didn't know that. It gets so much better. And so now I'm like, oh my gosh, compassion and forgiveness actually are the ways that I get to that leisurely loving life that I didn't think was possible, especially for someone like me.
1: So when you talk about, you know, finding yourself, living authentically yourself, did you ever think your career would grow the way that it has? Never. I think this is what I love to talk about, is the idea that when we are living authentically and as ourselves, in our purpose, in our genius, the world moves around that. Like once you're in the flow state, it starts to work, right? Because the universe wants you to be, it's rewards your most authentic self. And so I think this is just always what I'm trying to drive home to people is that that is the best thing you can do for the world and also for yourself. Because I built a company in which I felt a ton of resistance, a ton of resistance, years and years of resistance, doing something adjacent to my purpose, which was trying to create a more inclusive world. And it wasn't until I decided to shut it down that I realized that you know ex- purpose has many expressions, but that it didn't have to be so hard. <laughs> and I think that's a really important thing just to remind people is that there's resistance in life and then there's gratuitous resistance and finding that like flow state is sort of the, the special sauce of where you can really succeed.
0: And it's hard, often our threshold needs to be recalibrated we're so used to discomfort and instability that we just mistake that as reality. And so that's why we need to realize that this work is also collective. I needed people in my life to look at my life and be like, hey, this isn't it. Like, you're not happy, you're not sleeping enough, you're really stressed out, your anxiety's off the roof. And I'm like, what do you mean? This is just what it means. Because especially growing up in the family system that I did, I was taught from a young age that like depression is just something that we all have and that the world sucks and it's hard and you just have to keep working anyways. And so my threshold was so off because I was like, okay, pleasure is not for people like me. Peace is not for people like me. And, and so I, I didn't know that there was anything wrong because I didn't know that rightness was possible. And what I began to realize is like, all I can do is show up and tell the truth. I'm not responsible for how that truth lands on other people because they need to be the main character in their own story. So if they need to turn me into the villain, if they need to misinterpret me or misunderstand me, that says more about them than it says about me. All I can do is show up the truth. And I think that's extremely hard for people because once again, as kids, we're punished for being truthful. Like there are very few families that allow kids to say, hey, I I don't want to smile for you right now. I'm actually feeling sad. (laughs) Or like, no, I, I, you know, that's why I love that Pixar movie, Inside Out. I don't know if anyone saw it.
1: Yeah, so good. It was
0: was so powerful to see like an expression of complex emotional range for young people and a culture that expects young people to constantly be like, amazing, wonderful, go-getters. So we're often told you won't be loved if you express your truth. And so the rewiring of doing the spiritual work is also about trusting in ourselves. Even if people don't like me, if I'm truthful, that doesn't matter because I like me.
1: Yeah, and I'm living in integrity with myself. I say truth telling is like one of the most spiritual things we can do because most people don't want to hear the truth. And to be that person, I mean, it's also very isolating, but it's it's the only way to stay, at least for me in my integrity. Like that's a big thing for me is truth telling. Mm-hmm. So, entrep- a lot of entrepreneurship, whether you're an artist, business leader, is about cultivating resilience. And we're gonna talk about that a lot sort of over the next day and a half. But I-, I wanna talk to you about how you wear your resilience. Because I don't think it's always easy as someone who is not fully embraced by culture to just every day live, be, breathe. And then on top of it, you know, you're you thrown a, a lot of other, other things. So I'd love to know how, is there like tools that you use? I think resilience is a bit of a muscle. I'd love to hear how you've cultivated it, how you continue to cultivate it, and what your practice around resilience is.
0: Sure. So resiliency comes from vulnerability. And I know those things often aren't imagined as together, but they really are. Powerful people are people who know how to ask for help. Powerful people are people who rely on one another and need each other. I am not interested in the fiction of individualism. I think it's a ghost story. My resilience is because I can call a friend and say, I'm in pain, can we talk? My resilience is that I can let the people in my life know, I'm really struggling, can we work this out together? I don't feel like I should have to share in this alone. And I think actually the only way I'm able to deal with the kind of relentless crusade against me that for hundreds of years has tried to disappear people like me from the face of this earth. And that's not a metaphor. It's actually a material reality. There have been centuries of entrenched ideologies and political institutions that want to convince you that gender nonconforming and non-binary people like me are fake not that we've always lived alongside in this world when confronted with that systemic erasure i can't do this alone no one can do this alone so i do it together and that's why friendship is a practice friendship is actually the salvation the anecdote the medicine for me in my life i would say part of my practice is ensuring in my schedule I have time for long, leisurely dinners and lunches with my friends where I can stretch out my feelings, my thoughts, have an interlocutor so I can actually figure out what's going on inside of me. It's kind of like journaling through a conversation, being able to share with someone else. I think whenever I'm experiencing attacks, I let people know. I think for a long time as a young person, I used to feel like I can't let people know because I want to protect them. And now i started to realize this is not my own issue this is our issue we should not live in a world where people's appearance invalidates their right to exist in public space that's absurd and that's not just on me that's on all of us how have we created a world where people's what they're wearing has any bearing on their legitimacy that's ridiculous It's not about what we look like. It's about who we are. And until we create a world that recognizes that, this is not on me. And that work of being able to say, this is not on me, I think has been the hardest work because I'm an empath, which the room, of course. (laughs) So I often took on other people's stuff as myself. And like that the goal of me being alive was to fix everything for everyone else. And that's why this is even unfamiliar for me to say. It's like. It's taken me a long time to get here, but now I understand these are our collective issues. These, these are not individual issues. And, and that's why I feel like the, the language around mental health in this country is really dangerous because it makes, pe- makes depression and anxiety and mental health, individual people's problems and not actually natural responses to a world that is callous and cruel. And so we have to implicate the world. In my poetry, I write, there's no X-ray large enough to scan an entire country it is easier and more cost-effective to blame you. And I think as Americans, we internalize that blame. It's our individual shortcoming, it's our failure, it's our lack, but it's not, it's a systemic failure. And once we recognize that, we recognize that resiliency as strategy can't just be internal, it has to be collective.
1: I love that. I love that so much. Cause I think oftentimes when we're going through stuff, you're right, like we internalize it as our own thing and then we don't want to put it on other people or our struggle or we can also play the sort of victim olympics around well m- m- i have this privilege so my pain is not as valid as this person's pain and i think that so much of being a human in america is living in pain because <laughs> it's you know mm-hmm. built for one type of person but i also think that being an entrepreneur being a, a, an artist is it's also lonely It's a very lonely endeavor in which you're coming up against your edges again and again and again and if you don't build the right community or face those edges right it can very quickly impact your mental health and your well-being and the well-being of whatever your work is
0: and that's why peers are so important because here's the truth i didn't know it was possible to live a life as an artist Mm. i was taught that artistry is a side hustle a hobby, something yeah, me too. Me too. Right, that you do is outside of your job. And then I met other artists and they were like, no, I've, I've actually found a way to make an income out of this. And I was like, what are quarterly taxes? How do I think about deductibles? Like, there's no way I would have learned any of these hard skills if I didn't ask. And that's why I really love our, our careers that are off the beaten path, because right now, the way that mainstream work works is through smoke and mirrors. No one's transparent about salaries. No one's transparent about healthcare plans. Whereas when you get a bunch of freelancers and entrepreneurs in a room, we have to be very honest with each other. Yeah, what are (laughs) they paying you? you Are they they paying me less?
1: That's what happens all the time. You're like, what are they paying you? Oh, I got the lower offer? Uh Uh-uh, no, that's real. So I'd love if you could speak to, when we talk about work culture and building inclusion, what do you think people need to think about from day one?
0: The first thing that people need to really realize is that inclusion isn't a courtesy to diverse people. Inclusion is about making a better organization or business for all people, because we have all of the data to show that when you have diverse people in a room, you have diverse perspectives, which makes your organization more resilient. So when you only have people from one demographic, they're not flexible or adaptable enough to respond to the shifting needs of a market, let alone what's happening in the world. So inclusion actually is an asset for the entire group, not just something on the side. And I, I think one of the things I've been concerned with is that there's this kind of like diversity and inclusion movement that it's it feels very pigeonholed. It's still on the side. It's, very it's not performative. performative. Right? Yeah. It's not weaved into the fabric of the organization, which it should be. I think the next piece is what I began saying around the internal and the external. It's not just about um, like learning about gender, race, class, ability. Those things are important, of course. But it's also about learning about mental health. Because what I find is that if people are so committed to their resentment and their bitterness, they're not going to receive any of this as anything other than an attack. So they'll be like, well, my life was hard and I had to work hard. We're not diminishing the fact that your life was hard, but in order for you to have grace and mercy for people who are different from you, some part of you is unhealed. And that's why I'm always trying to bring the inclusion conversation linked to the healing conversation. They're often separate, but they have to be connected. Like, really? Like, you're going to be upset about marginalized people asking for equity and not upset about the fact that you mistake a fishbowl as the only zone of possibility when there are eons of ocean, infinity for us here. Your abundance has been lost because of your trauma, not because of me. And you're outsourcing your pain and trauma onto me, but someone made you feel like you had to compete in order to be heard, and that's not about me. And so that's why I also feel like as an artist, I bring in more somatic and creative practices in the way that I do inclusion work, like journaling before we actually speak. So you can get out some of the nonsense and actually be like, what is the clarity that I actually need to have here? Like actually an open mic for me where everyone can actually feel honest about sharing their story, teaching people the power of storytelling. Yes, we can have identities, but those don't actually capture our entire stories. Stories allow us to experience each other three-dimensionally. So I guess my approach includes like lessons from trauma work and healing work, lessons from creative industries like creative writing and diversity and inclusion work. And they all have to be together.
1: I'm still stuck on um your abundance is lost on your trauma. Whoa, that is good. That's really good. What have been some of the, Modalities and tools that have been most effective in your healing journey.
0: Hmm. I keep a daily journal for the past 10 years of every single thing that I've thought, done, every person that I've met every single day. And it takes so much time. Like I don't want to sit out here and be like, it's like a quick, it's it's literally such an onerous task. But what it allows me to do is I can check, okay, today's September 29th. What was I feeling on September 29th, six years ago? What was I afraid of? And what I'm able to see is that the things that I was afraid of were so small in the scheme of my life. And there were probably other things that I should have been thinking about that I wasn't thinking about. And that creates in me a practice of humility where I realize how infinitesimally small I am. I know that NASA just released those new gorgeous photos of the universe. And I had this extremely emotional experience of being like, look at how small we are. Like, look at how relatively insignificant we are in the scheme of the universe. And people are like, what? Like, why are you celebrating that? And I'm like, because then I don't have to take life as seriously as I do. Like, I am a blip in the scheme of everything. And that is so refreshing. So that has really humbled me is that I can remember that the things that are difficult are going to pass. And that in the scheme of everything, what I'm experiencing is enormous right now might not be. And then I think the second thing that's been really helpful for me is finding nonverbal forms of communication, style, and it's so cool to be able to say this like in in this kind of setting. So often style aesthetics and fashion get dismissed as superficial, or as like a distraction from the real work or as vanity. But I actually think that there are acts of self celebration in a world that devalues us they're forms of expressing things that we need to say that we can't through words. Before I had the language to articulate who I was, I was taking clothes from my mom's closet and taking clothes from my dad's closet, putting them on. And it was the closest they'd ever come to getting along together on me. And I really began to realize like, this is healing me. Style is not just about impressing other people or looking good for other people. It's about being able to feel comfortable in your own skin.
1: So I created my own concentration in college, and it was clothing as culture. Wow. Because I believe that it was about cultural signifiers, really, but I, I majored in focus on fashion. And for me, it's always been a huge form of expression that I agree with you is written off as very vapid, but really at the core speaks to what's happening in a culture at any time. So if you look at what clothes people are wearing at any time, you can pinpoint what's happening, whether it's a wartime or other times, like you can really start to understand a culture through how people are dressing. So you are speaking the beat of my heart, um, which is such a big part of, I think being a creative or multi-hyphenate is the, having different creative outlets. And for me, fashion is a massive one um, as it is for you. And I celebrate that in you.
0: Yeah, I am geeking out as well because I actually like I'm part time fashion historian buff and (laughs) what you're to your point, I mean, so many of the innovations we have in fashion around buttons, pockets, whatever can actually link to wartime can be linked to scarcity of products like it actually is a really powerful tool to understand serious topics like economy or borders or colonialism or war or gender. And the reason that it gets seen as vapid is because it's feminized. And I think that large makes a larger point around healing, that people keep on looking to the abusive system to heal them. And actually, that's not how healing works. We have to go to the knowledge systems, to the methods, to the approaches that are often diminished as vapid, futile, excessive, absurd. So when I am in a corporate business room and I'm asking people to practice breath and they're looking at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, that's exactly what we need to be doing. The very things that you think of as unrelated, as not having to do with this, they actually are deeply related because by the way, you're not a machine, you're a human being and your breath travels along your vagus nerve, which connects all of your vital organs. And how are you supposed to be making decisions that can affect millions of people when you're not embodied in your own self like of course you're going to create products that alienate the masses when you're alienated from itself all these interviews of tech giants saying that they don't let their kids on the social media apps <laughs> that they put out into the world i'm like you are dissociated thank you for letting us know that <laughs> what would a tech industry look like that was actually lucid where people felt in their bodies And made technological innovation from that place, not from fleeing or escaping it. So it's actually the knowledge systems that we dismiss of as fickle and silly that have the keys. So things like fashion, things like creative writing, things like vulnerability that are dispossessed of material weight in our culture, those are the things that I rally for. Those are the things that I'm an ambassador for. And that means that maybe the business leaders you were looking for to be driven. Are not wearing boring suits, but maybe they're people with rainbow hair and mini skirts who you never thought as professional, but actually have the lessons and life experiences that can completely shift your industry.
1: Can we just take that one step more granular? So, for people that are building technology, you know, if technology is not going to go anywhere, how do we build it more consciously? How do we build tools? So, I think a lot with like the things like Facebook, I don't believe. It was mal, it had mal intent. I believe that we can't possibly predict the future and know the repercussions of the technology when we build it. But I think we can do exercises to future proof or try and think about these things. And so I would love if you have any ideas around people building technology, how to do this more consciously or more thoughtfully that we don't repeat what has just happened in in our tech cycle.
0: I agree with you. I tend to operate from the premise that everyone is trying their best and that everyone's looking for love and connection. It's just that we're looking in the wrong places. And I can empathize because everyone's intentions are often wonderful. But then where my empathy stops is when people aren't accountable when their intention doesn't actually translate into the impact. And that's the crisis of tech right now, is that an intention to make us an interconnected world, in fact, has made us an even more polarized world that has destabilized democratic processes across the entire world, and that has spread rampant misinformation that specifically targets people like me. I mean, Media Matters, a think tank in DC found that 80% of content shared on social media about trans people comes from right-wing, biased, factually incorrect sources, which we can now trace to leading to over 330 pieces of anti-LGBTQ legislation in 2022. So the same social media companies that changed their logos to rainbows during June are silent about how they've been platforming right-wing misinformation about my community, which is fueling violence against us, both legislatively and physically. So I'm deeply embroiled in this conversation. I'm not interested in absolutes. I'm not interested in saying things are inherently good or bad. What I am interested in saying is, what does that impact look like? And the first thing that we really need right now is we need more diverse leaders in the tech industry. Because when you have people from our communities actually in leadership positions, they're thinking about these things. They're understanding the context of this. It's not removed, it's not some ender's game of looking on a screen and saying, oh, this is happening over there. It's happening to our friends, to our peers, to our family members, the lives we have, the biographies that we have, texture the way that we design and that we innovate. So actually, once again, then diversity isn't just an asset for me, it's about creating a more ethical and humane product. And the second thing is actually finding a way to get community feedback, be integrated. Right now, it feels very perfunctory, like fill out this form with your issue, but there's not really something substantive. What does that actually look like as a business to model receiving feedback? I think that businesses have egos too. And what happens is that businesses are out here saying, we want to be good guys, which means that we're going to silence and censor any critique of us. What I admire about businesses is, hey, your critiques are totally valid. What ideas do you have? And actually seeing people who use your product, not just as customers, but as collaborators and creating a better product. What ideas do you have to make your experience with this better? Integrated feedback before, not just after the fact. At all levels, where you can actually have users be involved in a substantive way. And then I think the third thing that I'd really like to see is more assessment. The rate of tech right now and the rate of innovation right now is onto the next, onto the next, onto the next, onto the next. So we never take a second to pause and be like, okay, so what did this actually look like? What are the lessons that we actually learned from this? And that kind of contemplation and reflection is once again seen as a negative asset. It's a form of knowledge that's once again underwhelmed. But here's the truth contemplation and stillness are key to entrepreneurship. If you really want to create amazing, imaginative products, let people chill. Chilling is not actually being lazy. The more that we learn about the creative process, actually, when we're resting, our brains are actually processing and synthesizing so many things. And I see this really tangibly as an artist. I can sometimes just write an entire speech and people are like, how did you do that? And I'm like, that's because for the past five days, I've been mulling on it while I'm doing other things.
1: Well, the creative process, it starts pre-verbally. So if you rush it, you're actually going to disconnect from the inspiration thought, right? So you actually need that downtime and that rest to actually fuel the full genius of the idea. But I wanna talk about entrepreneurship for a second, which is I agree with you, I agree with everything you're saying. But if we look at the culture of entrepreneurship, which is fail fast to fail forward, like this move, 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 capitalism, productivity, move, 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 we gotta make more money, all of that, it puts a lot of people into what I believe is a lens of scarcity and the surviving self. And so once you're in the lens of scarcity and the surviving self, how do we ask people to get out of that? And that's sort of, I think it's very hard, having been a founder and felt that pressure and that scarcity, and you know, venture capital itself, it's you have X, you're running out of money of X amount of time to pitch your worth to a bunch of people to raise the money to survive. So how do we help people stand in the thriving self and not their surviving self?
0: Hmm. It's once again, internal, external. I'm a big believer that all of these macro-based systems are just reflections on our interior lives. Because another way to frame that question would be, how do we get people who are in fight or flight mode to be able to relax whenever they fear danger? How do we get people to deactivate their nervous systems and to saying that, hey, this fear that you're feeling isn't real? The first thing we do is we don't gaslight people. So we don't come in with toxic positivity saying, babe, just rest and relax, it's gonna be okay. Like, don't worry, you're gonna be amazing, you're awesome. That does nothing to help people who are struggling in that way. It's about legitimating people's fears and concerns and saying, I totally understand why you're feeling this fear and why you're feeling this trepidation and nervousness. But if you really want to be successful, that's where contemplation and stillness will help. So it's not, it's actually saying if what you want is a better thing, in the same way that we're saying authenticity helps you get what you want, what I'm trying to get people to recognize is peace and stillness help you get what you want. Actually, big tech is teaching you that this rat race is the only way to get there. It's not. Actually, there's another way to do this. There's another ecosystem to do this that will get you there and allow you to actually enjoy it. Because the other piece, you might create the next amazing innovation and still be depressed as hell and feel like you're not enough. And then everyone's like, wow, you've made it, you've done it. And you don't feel like it because you still think that you're not enough and you still have something to prove. So if you actually want to enjoy your life, this is the the approach. And then I think the next is once you get them to recognize that this is aligned with it, you have to model it yourself. This is a big shift in my thinking as well. We cannot convince people to prioritize their healing. This is a lesson that we learn, especially from AA and from so many people who have worked with addiction. Shaming doesn't work. Trying to like show people to connect the dots doesn't work people have to make that decision themselves. But the way that people make that decision is they have to know that that decision is even possible to make. So we have to embody the philosophy that we are preaching. And we have to become the lighthouse that shows people that another way is possible. It was only when I began to see badass feminine women in business that I was like, oh my gosh, I can like come with a full face of makeup and like a six inch pump and I can be here. It wasn't someone saying me, hey, look, you can do that. That helped me. It was by seeing people there do it. So we have to live impossible lives to show people that it's not impossible. It's actually beyond your realm of imagination. And that expands your realm of imagination. So now, instead of trying to convince people of what is, I'm going to show you. And I'd like to think that my life and my career are a testament to that. No one thought that what i've been able to materialize in my life would be possible based off of what i'm saying and who i look like and what i'm trying to sh- show people is you have to believe by seeing people see what people believe in what they see in. and then i think the final piece here is faith and you know earlier you spoke about universe that's amazing to speak about in a business context because most people are not looking to the universe they're looking to like shareholders that's their frame <laughs> of reference And so what you're introducing here is a vocabulary around faith, which is, I need you to trust that there's a plan. You might not know the plan. You might not know the timeline of the plan, but all the combustion of the the chaos is guiding you to where you needed to be all along. And you have to surrender. And that is something that I think business people struggle so much. They want the semblance of control, autonomy, strength, look at me. I'm on top of the market. Sometimes, and I think the pandemic, once again, was such an exciting potential moment for people to finally look and be like, old school business isn't working because the world is fundamentally changing rather than trying to subsume it into our pre-existent paradigm. What if we surrendered and watched a new paradigm unfold around us? So what faith allows us to do is to actually practice the quiet and diligent practice of saying it's going to be okay. It's a month where I tell myself over and over again. It's going to be okay.
1: I love that. I want to go back to something you were talking about, which is embodied leadership, which integrated leadership is one of my favorite things to talk about. But it's one of these things also that can be a concept and not a reality. And so I think a lot of people are aware of things and their issues or maybe the the type of person they want to be. But the difference between being intellectually aware of something and having it be in your body. And when it's in your body and your awareness, that's when we become embodied, right? So I would love to know if you have any sort of practical tips for people to be embodied quicker. Because I, I believe this is one of my, I actually believe if we can get the world to embody anti racism you know, like be more inclusive, more accepting quicker, because I think most people think they are inclusive, right? This is, a, this is the big fallacy of 2022, is everyone's like, no, I'm inclusive. And you're like, no, you're not. And so how, how do we get people there faster? How do we get in the body faster? Do you have any ideas?
0: I just want to flag that this is the most difficult work for me too. So I'm in it in the trenches with you all. I master the art of dissociation as a young person. And intellectualizing my trauma was a way of not feeling it in my body. That's why I'm a third generation academic. I was really drawn to like being heady and cerebral because that meant I didn't have to feel the extent of the grief and the pain in my body. And my art practice was the only way that I allowed myself to express emotion because it was permissible when it was on stage or it was permissible when I was writing, but that was still about having containers for it. Like, if I allowed myself to fully feel it, I would be undone. But here's the secret. We have to become undone in order to be remade. We have to unlearn in order to learn. The shell that we've created based off of our trauma armor is not a life. And in order to truly live and not exist, we have to go through this cyclical process of shedding in order to receive. And so I think the first thing is is notice the things that trigger you, that you have irrational reactions to, that you don't like to see, that make you uncomfortable, and slowly start digging into those things. What lessons are being had there? And when you feel that pain, don't run away from it. Don't try to dissociate from it. Don't intellectualize it. Don't therapize it away. Sit in your pain and ask yourself, what is coming up for me? Chances are there's a repressed memory there. Chances are there's something that you didn't allow yourself to feel in the past there. That's our body trying to communicate with us. Without language, it uses pain. It uses bodily sensation. And then what you begin to realize is that when you actually listen to it, it loses its stranglehold on you. It's just wanting to be witnessed. And so then you let it go. And then in its place, you begin to realize that you're more aware of the sensation of charm and joy. So embodiment is not just about feeling your pain, it's also about feeling your joy, your curiosity, and your sensation. So I used to think dissociation would protect me because it was preventing me and shielding me from experiencing hard things, but it was also preventing me from accessing good things at all. So an embodied practice also allows you to notice, hey, maybe the reason that I am jealous about someone is because I'm curious about a part of myself that I've not explored. So now I see jealousy and envy as teachers. They're my body trying to say to me, hey, you thought that you were on this track, but there's some part of you that's underexplored. Go there.
1: Yeah, I always say like, hi, old friend. Nice to see you. <laughs> nice to see you here. I, didn't know, I thought we were out of here already, but nope, we're still here. You know, it's, it's a good reminder. So, look, I'm going to jump into some rapid fire questions. Five questions, let your intuition guide you, no wrong answers, do you. What would you tell your 20 year old self?
0: You're doing the best that you can and that's beautiful.
1: What is the last book you read?
0: I'm reading a book right now on the history of patriarchy.
1: Oh, do you know what it's called?
0: Patriarchs, I think, (laughs) it's coming out in a moment. I
1: will, I will get it. (laughs) What are you struggling with right now?
0: Balance, I feel like I have so many opportunities that I want to take, and I need to sleep, and I don't know how to reconcile those.
1: And you're in a different city every day.
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah.
1: What is bringing you joy right now?
0: Being on stage. I'm just having so much fun. I love that.
1: And what is the best piece of advice you have ever received?
0: Hmm. There's so many, so I'm trying to choose what is the best. I think I would say that I can't give you advice because I don't know your life.
1: Ooh. That's a go Oh, look! this was a gift and a joy, and thank you for making the time. I know you're incredibly busy and you're doing a show every night, so it means the world to us. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you, and thank you so much for elevating these conversations, and it's been such an honor to be able to connect with you.
1: All right, break a leg tonight. These are some good, good, juicy takeaways. The first one being, abundance is lost on trauma. This one got me. I think it's the most concise way to put what I'm feeling in the current workplace world is that we are missing out on so much abundance, whether that be love or money, and it's being lost on trauma, on the lack of healing. And as Alok said, the healing conversation is inherently linked with the leadership conversation. We need radical imagination. Maybe the leaders that we need aren't from the system that harmed us. My therapist says, when we derive things to meaning, we limit ourselves to what has been experienced. And this is a great example, is that we can only imagine what we know. And if we were to suspend what we know, there's huge opportunity ahead of us. And so I want us to remember that when we look at our models of leadership, maybe they aren't the ones that we're looking for. As we drive home probably every episode on this podcast, and Alok so lovely drove home for us once again, is that the internal is the external. The outer is the inner. These things are inherently linked, and we cannot be great leaders without doing the inner work. We have to lead by example. We cannot teach people to prioritize their healing. We can only show them when we do it for ourselves as an example why they should follow. That's what I've seen in my work is that the more that I integrate and do my work, You don't have to really preach or say anything. People can just notice that you're more at peace, and that is something I hope everyone chooses and searches for, to be more at peace. We have to live impossible lives to show people it is not impossible. It is just beyond our current realm of imagination. This one is good. We have to live impossible lives. And lastly, sit in your pain. It is the only way through, and it is okay this podcast is one of the most nourishing things that I do with my time. And it could not be possible without a select few people who really have put their time and energy to make this podcast live. So thank you, Wine Design, South by Southwest Innovators Fund, Lenny Skolnick, and Young Scorp Social. You guys really are the Unsung Heroes of this podcast, the little pod that could. I thank you so, so much and can't wait to hear all of your feedback on this amazing season.